Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. And as always, we are sponsored by Running Aces Racetrack and Casino. And we are already on episode 125, which is pretty sweet. And uh, we have once again with us James Splitsuit Sweeney. Uh, James joined us, he joined us a couple times, but episode 84 last June is where we kind of took a deep dive into, into James and his world. And so if you want to know more about him and his background, uh, check out episode 84. Uh, just a couple of really quick announcements before we get rolling. The Crazy Like a Fox training series is off and running. We've just finished our fourth out of the 10-week uh, sessions and just really good feedback, really interactive. A lot of people learning a lot of things. Uh, the discussion boards are super active. So if that's something you want to still jump into, you still can. Uh, I can give you access to the previous videos if you want to catch up. Uh, otherwise, just wanted to let you know that uh, it's just super fun, man. Super fun, super engaging. Uh, people are having a great time with that deal. And then the last uh, thing I wanted to mention is just our weekly Running Aces Player of the Week standings. Drum roll, please. Uh, it's actually kind of a short week uh, at Running Aces because they're doing the Spring Poker Classic. So they've got all kinds of special events. So the Player of the Week points only apply to their regular events, but the four Actually, five winners because there was a tie for fourth place. But those folks who were player of the week for running aces, Casey Conlon, Brian Soja, David Cramber, Alex Mua, and David Rubel. So congrats, guys, on your player of the week tournament lammers that you picked up. So with that, I just want to race through this stuff because I want to get to this guy. Uh, just a fantastic dude and super grateful that he's been willing to give us time for the on the Rec Poker podcast here. But let me bring in... Uh, James Splitsuit Sweeney from Mississippi. James, how are we doing? Not too bad. Thank you so much for having me as always. Nice to be back. Yeah, and it sounds like we're catching you on a day when you're lacking sleep. Every single Monday. So Mondays are, I'm always up at three in the morning on Monday. I actually love getting the, the week started kind of off on that high foot. Um, and I usually only get like two or three hours of sleep the night before. So I'm a little exhausted, but that's to be expected for Monday. So, so let me get this straight. So getting up at three in the morning on a Monday is starting the week on a high foot. I love that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know... I'm one of the, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a morning person, kind of the way it is. And, you know, when you're able to get working before everyone else is awake, everyone in the house, everyone's sleeping, everyone's taken care of, and you can just start generating that edge nice and early. Oh, I love that. Nothing nice. Better. Well, I was going to bed about two in the morning, so we almost crossed over <laughs> there. <laughs> I mean, getting up at three in the morning and being excited about it, that seems like a Mississippi thing. So maybe I'll just let that, let that go. <laughs> but Could no, that, that's I'm, exciting. I'm a, strange, I'm a strange dude when it comes to productivity stuff. So that's yeah. always an experimentation mode when it comes to that. <laughs> well, I, I love that. I love, you know, everybody's sort of got this perspective on life and how they approach it. And I love hearing those different ways to do that. So hopefully your your productivity will bleed over and benefit those of us that are Rec Poker Nation folks. So why don't we, um, I'll just turn it over to you, man. If you want to share anything as far as, you know, anything going on in your world, we can take care of that now or at the end, but, you know, maybe let us know a little bit about what's going on and then we'll dig into a couple of hands with you that you brought with. Yeah. So let's just kind of kick in and start with hands first, because I love talking about strap pretty much more than anything. So let's kind of rock and roll with that and have some fun. So I'm going to keep this super open to whatever you guys want to do. If you guys want to, you know, how do you guys normally do this? Fire a lot of questions, kind of stop per action. We uh, pretty, we pretty much interrupt you all of the time. So okay, you can you can intentionally stop at each street or whenever you think there'd be something good to chat about. But 
uh, our folks are pretty good about just interjecting questions as they have them. So hopefully that's not offensive. We just want to, our goal is to really kind of pick your brain and think, what are you thinking there? Uh, so uh, yeah, we'll just kind of make it as interactive as possible. That works for me. So the only thing when I'm sharing my screen, I can't see you guys. Is that correct? Uh, you probably can't. I can see you. So ha ha. Okay. But you might not be able to see us. And just a reminder, too, that still a bulk of our audience is podcasts only. We do have a YouTube channel, uh, but okay. most of our plays are happening audio only. So to the extent that you can, uh, try to actually explain things as if people can't see your screen. Okay, perfect. I, I really appreciate that. That's very, very helpful. All right, so let, let's start with, I kind of brought two hands with me, and they're both kind of opposite side of the spectrum. One is on the bluffy side of the spectrum, a spot that I think a lot of people miss, even though it's incredibly simple, cheap, and easy. And then the other is on the value side of the spectrum, really trying to make sure that we maximize value on a very, very strong hand. We do get a very favorable board run out, but oftentimes when it comes to getting paid max in a live game, especially kind of that tends to be the case. So it's more when it does happen, when the good thing does end up lining up, let's make sure that we can fully maximize. So you guys want to start with the bluff hand first, or you want to start with the value hand first? In, in honor of the nicest guy in poker, John Sonsky, let's start with the bluff hand. We'll go with the bluff hand. Perfect. All right. So all of these hands were played at 1-3 live. I was uh, playing NOLA, I don't know, maybe last month, the month prior, I, I forget. But these are all hands from a live NOLA session. It was middle of the week, so there's nothing else running. Um, so 1-3, we have, we're in the big blind with king nine of diamonds, have about 450 to start the hand. A player with about 100 big blinds to start the hand opened from under the gun plus one. They open to 12, so four big blinds. It folds around to me and I defend, which for me is pretty darn typical. Do you guys do anything different here or is this a pretty standard flat for everyone? Yeah, what's, I mean, what's your thought on three betting? I mean, I guess folding seems a little bit snug out of the big blind here with king nine of diamonds, but you know, what? what's your thoughts on three betting or what would have changed in this situation to have you maybe consider that a little bit heavier? Yeah, sure. Really good question. So three betting here is totally fine. You know, pretty much anything that's on the weaker side of the spectrum, you can feel super comfortable saying, okay, this can probably get three bet, especially in a game where someone is opening a little bit on the, either one of two things. They're either opening on the tight side of the spectrum and giving three bets action very, very tightly, or they maybe open a little bit to too liberally, and then they're still going to be folding a good chunk of the time. I'm really looking for outright profit when I'm doing these kind of three bets, just simply because once you get the continuance, there's usually not a ton of like post-flop room left just based on stack sizes, even at a hundred big blinds, it's, you know, um, or live, you have the larger open raise size than you do in an online environment, which inherently means the three bet size is going to be larger, which inherently means smaller SPR going post-flop in a three bet pot. So you could certainly go for the three bet here. It's really one of those where I think this hand just plays really, really nicely as a flat. You know, if I had something a little bit weaker, say king seven, king six suited, that might be something where I say, you know what, I don't think there's as much flat playability, so I'll just three bet it instead. But a lot of the times, especially because we're getting a pretty good price in the big blind to close action here, 
And it's just one of those where I have to ask myself, which is going to generate the larger edge for me? Three betting them and applying that pressure, which again is usually with more of an outright profitable mindset, or flat it and utilize my post-flop edge. And even though there's not going to be like heaps and heaps of playability post-flop, I still think that we can generate our edge. And if you implement what we're going to talk about on the flop, then it's something where you can actually start flattening even more hands because you can start turning more and more of those hands into outright profit. Does that make sense? It, it does. So when you think about um, like how much equity, you, how much just hand equity you have in this hand. So you, in, a, in a sense, you're saying we have enough hand equity. That, that, let's see a flop here because we wouldn't want to be four bet off of this hand versus a king six or something where it, it you know it's not as painful to be four bet off of that hand. Is that part of the yeah. process? Yeah, so that, that's definitely part of it. And the other part is... When it comes to preflop and there's going to be, say, this is a great example, right? We're closing action if we do decide to call, so we know we're going to have to play out postflop. Right? It's a little bit different if we're calling, say, from middle position. There's a bunch of people behind us that could you know, right. blow preflop spot. But take a spot like this, it's a little bit more clear cut. I'm less looking at my direct hand equity because the hand equity, what are you looking at it from? More of like a hot cold sense and the hot cold number honestly isn't really that useful, right? It would take our king nine of diamonds against whatever range we think EP2 opens with and get that equity output. All it is is just hot cold. But that assumes you're going to see all five cards. It doesn't really assume playability. Okay. So my thought is, can I win this pot often enough and make it worthwhile in order to flat? And if so, if that's going to be plus EV, how does that compare to the EV of just three betting? So that's why I don't mind three betting a king six suited, which is a little bit more garbage, has a little bit less playability, less gut shots to catch post flop. Whereas king nine, again, that connectivity is definitely going to, in my opinion, start favoring it a little bit more towards the flat rather than three betting kind of burn up some of that value. And I think flatting could perform in a higher EV scenario. Okay, perfect. Any other questions, guys, comments? I think we're good to go. All right, perfect. All right, so again, King Nine of Diamonds, I'm just trying to reiterate for the people that are audio only. So pot is 25 bucks. We have King Nine of Diamonds. We have about a 10 SPR pot. And the flop comes 10 of diamonds, seven of clubs, five of spades. So total brick, we have some backdoor stuff going for us, but ultimately we don't have any pairs. We don't have any direct draws. Everything is kind of on the, the backdoor side of the spectrum. So we check, EP2 decides to fire for 15, and I go for the check raise up to 53. So first thoughts, good, bad, or ugly? Yeah, I, don't, I mean, yeah, I don't know. What do you, what do you guys think? I mean, I, I, I've, I, se I've seen a lot of people lead into a pot like that, but I, I don't like that at all. But John, go ahead. Well, I kind of like it. You don't have much equity yeah. that you're worried about. Uh, and this is a way to win the pot that you wouldn't normally be able to win. The 10.75 flop is low enough that it doesn't smack the uh, opener's range in the middle of his range. So, you know, unless he's sitting on, he or she is sitting on an overpair, um, you don't expect him to hit all that often. So I kind of like this, this play. It's basically saying, I don't care what my cards are. I'm not letting you have this pot. Exactly. The, the, exactly. the one thing I was thinking about when I, when I was reluctant was, I mean, I kind of like the check raise, but you know, the, the bet sizing to 53, that's where I get concerned about it just because I think, okay, we're not really pot committed, but it kind of feels like we're getting there. Like we're pretty close because 
you know, they've got 250 behind and now we've just put in 50. And so I, I see that working both ways. I see that, you know, in a sense, we're committing ourselves quite a bit, but I also would see that our opponent is going to sense that as well and feel like we're going to force them to play for their stack. So I'm, I'm kind of curious, does this, does this feel like we're sort of committing ourselves down the road or is it still a pretty easy getaway? I mean, not obviously they re-raise here, we just get away, but do we feel like we're sort of committing ourselves on the turn of the river by making this size of a bet? Okay. So you're asking some really, really good questions. And this kind of goes into the technical part of this hand. So let's just say, just close your eyes. I force you to check race here, gun to head and your opponent calls. When they call, what do you think they're calling with? When they just call? Yeah. When you check race here and they call and anyone can, can chime in here. What do you think they're calling with? They'd probably call if they had, you know, Ace-10 would definitely call, mm -hmm. King-10. Any, anything that they hit uh, the 10 with would call. They'd call with over pairs. Uh, they'd definitely call with over cards. You know, Ace-King Ace would call, maybe Ace-Queen. Um, Do you think nines and eights ever call, just call there or not on check raise? Uh, I would – it's possible. I mean, obviously, if they – they hit a set they might call they might raise too but that's a pretty small portion of their range exactly it is and especially because we have a nine which blocks some of that out already so you got even further reduction on the the nines and eights so there there are two two different things that i think about here and kind of going in line with uh i'm sorry who just spoke is that john that was john john, mm -hmm. john okay sorry i can't see who's speaking so john i think you're you're exactly right but you have to really make a decision here and the decision is that when you check raise and your opponent calls when you're making that that assumption do you think they're continuing with the naked over cards or do you think it's really going to be exclusively pair plus and if you think it's exclusively pair plus, there's probably a good chunk of folding happening right this moment. If you think that your opponent is going to be continuing with some or all of their overcards, ace-king, king-queen, ace-queen, ace-jack, now all of a sudden you get far fewer folds right this moment, but essentially you start creating a situation where they can have a lot of bricked over cards on turns, which can actually make a very profitable two-step line, check, raise, flop, double barrel turn, and your opponent's going to be relinquishing too often. So I like to make that decision very, very aggressively right this moment. I feel far too many people will check raise here, their opponent continues, and then they're just kind of like dancing around in this assumption, which can create some really, really muddy turn and river play and turn specifically. So make that decision right this moment. Do you think the overcards are coming or not? Some players, most certainly. Other players, certainly not. They're never, ever taking whiffed overcards to the turn here unless they have some sort of draw with it, and there's no draws for those, those kind of hands to have here. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. That, that is genius. I mean, do, do you make that decision uh, prior to check raising as far yes. as do I think this is the kind of person that is going to come along with over over cards or not, or does that? Yes, I, mean, I have to make that decision because when I'm just mucking around like I am right here, you know, we just have king high. Yeah. We have, you know, yeah, we have some backdoor draws, but in no way, shape, or form is this really because we have backdoor draws. But this but how does how does that inform then your decision to check raise? Because it seems like in either case, it can go in your advantage. So if they're the kind of player that's only going to call with an over pair, 
then your check raise is going to work that much more often. If they're kind of player that is going to continue with just two big cards, then your check raise won't work as often, but your turn bet will. So, I mean, in both cases, are you still saying, well, I'm still going to check raise. It's too good of a spot. You're just knowing in advance what type of range you're going to be facing. So this is exactly why I feel you have to make this discernment right this moment. Because if you don't and you start kind of dancing around on the turn, then think about it. If it is the kind of person who only gives your flop check raise action with pair plus and none of that is going to fold to your turn barrel, now all of a sudden a turn barrel that's really good against naked over cards is now horrific against a range that's pair plus. So that's why I feel you have to make that decision right this moment. And I understand that's difficult. I understand not everyone wants to do that. But if you can, that's when the rest of the play just becomes automatic. You know if the turn is a barrel, you know if the turn is never a barrel, and you know if this is just a one-shot stab. This being a one-shot stab can be totally fine. And we can mathematically prove that, right? I mean, this is my my break-even percentage uh, tool. If you don't know break-even percentage, it's simply risk divided by risk plus reward. So in this case, we are risking a $53 check raise to pick up the $40 pot, which includes EP2's $15 bet into a 25 pot. So we are risking 53 into a reward of 40, which gives us a break-even percentage of 57%, which means that if our opponent's folding more than 57% of the time, we have an outright profitable check raise. Now, does that mean the double barrel is going to be automatically good or bad? No, it just simply means we have an outright profitable check raise. It doesn't matter if I have king nine, if I have six, four, or if I have, you know, ace, deuce, to hearts here, it's all, it's all the same thing. It's all outright profit. So these are things that we should be looking for. And it's very simple with some broad strokes math to be able to figure out, okay, can I make this check raise? Is it going to be outright profitable? And then whether or not it's outright profitable, you still have to ask the question of if my opponent does continue, what's my future street plan? That all making sense? Yeah, for sure. Chris, did you have something? I was going to ask about bet sizing just like you did. So actually maybe I'll just follow up with that though. So what, um, you, you said that some of the situations sort of you wanted to go to 53, but if you went to 45 or 42 or something like that, does that, does that accomplish the same thing for you or why, tell why did, why did you go so big? Okay. So really, really good. So this is where we have to, and does everyone on the call pretty much play live or are there any online players here? I think it's a, it's a mix. The mix. Okay. So live is very, very elastic in my opinion. You find players that have a pain point at 52, but don't have that same pain point at 48, right? $50 is a very, very important point. And you find those points all throughout the continuum when, especially when you're playing live, you find them very, very easily. So yes, if we went to, let's just say 40 here. Okay. Just cause it's a nice round number. So if we risked a $40 check raise into a pot of 40, our break even is 50%. Now, let's just say for giggles that we decide to double that. Well, now our breaking percentage is only two-thirds, right? So either way, we're still kind of in this ballpark of somewhere between 50 to 70%, which is the, the typical number you're going to come at at a break-even percentage when you're check-raising. Now, the reason why I say that is because I have to ask myself, okay, I was going to give you the, the broad strokes of how my brain works in the middle of a hand because I think that's sometimes just as helpful. I decide, am I going to check raise, yes or no, and then I start a negotiation process. 
Now, the way the negotiation process works in my head as a starting point in real time is essentially I pick three different sizes. So your question of a $40 check raise is definitely right there in my, in my questioning. I'll also typically choose like 60 and then I'll choose like 80, right? And I'll, I'll say, okay, of those numbers, which do I think is going to create the highest DV for me? And the reason why I start with the can I check raise first is because if I can, then I clearly have to choose a size. And if I think, yeah, I don't think I can check raise, I still might say, okay, well, what if I choose a really large size? Yes, I need more folds. But if we can generate more folds with the larger size, then awesome for it. So for instance, let's just say that our opponent raised, and this is not going to be a good range. I'm just going to use it just to, to highlight it for a moment. So let's say that we think our opponent actually raised preflop with 25% of hands, which I think is egregiously wide for a tighter live player, but I digress. And let's also assume that they see that everything on this board. So again, it is 10, buh, 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 7, 5, and we have king 9, just marking everything up in Flopzilla real quick. So if we're looking at this and saying, okay, if we check raise, we think they're going to continue with top pair plus, open it in straight draws, and that's really it. And we notice that comes out to them having that about 40% of the time, which means they probably fold your check raise 60% of the time. And by the way, this is how you start pairing this together with this kind of quote-unquote abstract break-even number. I know at first this seems kind of abstract, but when you pair this together with someone's range, now all of a sudden we can kind of see how this is working. So if we kind of take this for a moment and say, okay, if I check raised up to 80 bucks and I think he's only going to continue again, that 40% of the time fold 60. Well, if I went smaller, do I think they're continuing more often, right? If say I went to 40 bucks here, which is pretty darn small, our opponent only has to call 25 more. Well, now they're probably continuing with those pocket pairs below top pair, right? There's those nines and eights we talked about earlier. Probably continuing with any seven if they have it. Probably continuing with more of their weak pairs. And now all of a sudden we have more continuance. So there are going to be a lot of times in your live environment where it may increase the break-even percentage to use a larger size, but the larger size can create a heap of extra folds. Now, this still comes into the question of this doesn't automatically end the conversation because to the point of what if we chose the smaller size and our opponent continued with ace high, right? What if they're going to continue with ace king, ace queen, ace jack again on a 10 high board? Well, if that's the case, yes, they're continuing more, but now there's more things that can fold if I decide to say double barrel on a jack of hearts. Now, all of a sudden, maybe I can find more folds here and all of a sudden this can still be a profitable two-step play. I, I, I hope I'm not going too fast. I know I tend to go uh, through the technical stuff a little bit quickly, oh, but how's, how's this fitting so far? People can always rewind it and replay it. So we're good, man. This is fantastic. Okay. So does that kind of make sense with the, the bet sizing stuff? Again, we have to still understand what that does to the break even. It's always going to push that number higher, but if it can generate more folds, awesome. In fact, this is like, honestly, river play and bet sizing, I'd say is probably where my major edges come from in a live environment because I'm comfortable putting out numbers that other people are uncomfortable facing. Hmm. And that's a really simplified sentence, but it's really, really, really important. If you only ever stick within bet sizes that you are comfortable with and bet sizes that are normal for the game, then you should expect very normal results. And a normal result in poker is a losing win rate. Even a normal reg is winning a little bit, but they're definitely not at the high side hourly. So if you want to get there, you have to get outside your comfort zone, push your opponents further outside of their comfort zone, and all of a sudden you can find some really, really sick edges. 
that making sense? Yep. Stacy has something. Yeah. Not to distract us too much, but what if, what if you'd have nailed this flop? Let's say you had pocket tens. Mm-hmm. How, how does your thinking of with just what you just went through bet sizing? Um, how do you think through that compared to what you were just saying? Okay, perfect. So really, really good. Same exact thought process. But the only difference is here is you say we're, we're saying we have a stronger hand. So say tens. So I still ask myself the same questions. Does check raising get my opponent to fold too often? If I'm on the value side of the spectrum, I probably don't want that. If I decide to check call, how am I going to make profit? And by the way, that's another question we have to ask ourselves with the king nine here. Just because we found the check raising is profitable, be it for 45, 55, 85, whatever, we still have to ask ourselves, could check calling be more profitable? So when you have the really, really strong hand, I ask myself, is my opponent folding a lot of the time? Yes, we could say, okay, well, same question. I could choose the smaller check raise size, say check raise to 40 instead of 53, get more continuance, but does that really mean that I'm making that much extra on turns and rivers? Or does my opponent have more of a barrel issue, in which case I'm better off just check calling here and giving them room to barrel off? So it's a lot of things that you're factoring in all at once for sure, but Since we more often than not brick flops, since we more often than not have air, it's more important for me to spend a lot of my off-table time focusing on how can I make money with air and where can I throw more air into my ranges than it is for me to figure out the value stuff. And I say that because you catch value far less often and value hands are usually pretty simple, right? If this dude's really barely, check call, let him barrel off. If this dude tends to have a really tight c-betting range and is going to be very, very, you know, pair pinned, and you think you could check raise, get him to continue with all those pairs, choose the size where he continues with those pairs and go forward. Again, you guys have made it seem like 53 feels a little bit too large. If you think this dude's going to feel comfortable at 40, rock and roll. So you still have to kind of like merge and mesh these technical things like the break-even percentage, check raise sizing, and your opponent's range and frequencies with what are your goals and what are their likely mistakes. If you can pair those things up, and it will definitely happen with time and practice, this becomes very, very simple, whether you have king nine or you have pocket tens. That's fantastic. Um, Do you ever think about your image as far as doing – some of the something fairly similar when you've nailed it compared to when you're just playing with air in terms of like physical tell stuff or in terms of my, my ranges and frequencies as is what you would, what you would end up showing potentially at at the end. Okay. For table image. Perfect. So I, I am when I'm looking at this hand, or any hand similar to, I'm still very much thinking about my image and is my opponent caring about that. Now, here's the funny thing. They care to a very, very small extent, typically, because they're not comfortable putting chips at risk with ace high, king high, queen high very often. So what I mean by that is I might have a very, very bluffy image in a session, which is actually quite common, and my opponent, I'll check raise, and my opponent is going to sigh, say, I know you have air, and then still fold ace-king and ace-queen 
and you you name you know pocket fours, whatever it is, they they continue folding. So more often than not, even if they have some concept of what you might have range wise, they typically don't make proper adjustments. Now, if your opponent is likely to make a proper adjustment, which by the way is so incredibly rare in a live environment, and that's not to to try to be an ego asshole. Mm-hmm. I'm just being totally honest. Just a lot of people simply they, they're just not studied in that well enough. So if he is going to adjust, then clearly I can't be check raising all of my air. Because if I'm talking about check raising King Nine on ten nine, I'm sorry, on ten seven five, and also Ace Deuce, and also Ace Three, and also the plethora of other nonsense hands, then clearly I'm talking about check raising a ton of the time. Good players will tear me apart for doing that. But players who aren't making proper adjustments, either in their C bedding frequency or their continuance to my check raise frequency, then all of a sudden I can kind of do whatever the heck I want. And again, that's not out of ego. That's simply out of the fact that they're making larger mistakes than it is for me to strategically deviate by getting, quote unquote, too aggressive. But it's only too aggressive compared to someone who would adjust appropriately, which again, most people don't. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Fantastic. Okay. So again, there's a lot of factors here. And the the two big ones I'm looking at is EP2, you know, again, what did they raise prefop? And then what of those hands are they going to C-bet with? And in a game where a lot of players are over C-betting, it's pretty simple. You can probably assume that they're C-betting somewhere between 80 to 100% of the time. And in which case, you know, even if we take like a tighter opening range, Say we thought they opened like 10% of hands preflop. So deuces plus ace jack plus king queen. You notice that there's not 10x stuff in here, right? No ace 10, no king 10, no jack 10, no 10 9, which means that there's fewer and fewer hands that are going to be able to really withstand, right? Fewer top pair plus potentials that are going to get pinned off. So if we, you know, assume that they're going to see about pretty much all of that, well, their pocket pairs below top pair, assuming eights and nines are going to continue and also top pair plus right? They have that a third of the time, which means they fold two thirds. So if you go back and run the math on the $53 check raise into a pot of 40, break even 57, we assume folds roughly two thirds. So clearly making outright profit here. And this is very, very important and very, very helpful. Perfect. So does that make sense? It does. Yeah. I, I, I also like how you refer to your opponent as potentially having a barreling issue. <laughs> that's a phrase I haven't heard before. Are you just implying like somebody that just can't help themselves? They just keep coming? Yeah, exactly. You know, that that person just closes their eyes and just fires all three shells. Yeah. Very, very profitable for us. <laughs> I'm going to start using that phrase. They've, they've got a barreling issue. <laughs> if I might, give you yeah. a little bit of credit, I'll take it. <laughs> John, go ahead. I said I might be that person. <laughs> hey, and that's really important for you to identify. Not in, to be honest, it's less of an issue in a live environment unless you're just really never choosing the right people. But the biggest issue that people have in a live environment is they play too tight, they play too focused on their own cards. So if you are willing to put people in uncomfortable situations and you're comfortable there and you have some technical backing to it, again, a bare bones understanding of break even percentage and a bare bones understanding of frequencies, I mean, you can generate huge, huge edges even with a pretty darn bad barrel issue for sure 
So we are running long on this hand, which I didn't. It's what we do, man. This is what we do. I hear, I hear you. This is me all day long when I start getting into hands. I, well, what, I, what happened? Did you, did you get them to release on the flop there or what happened? In the? Yeah. So they folded here. Yeah. Okay. And this is another situation where he literally out loud says, I know you have nothing and folds. And you yep. see all of the time. And, and what this really proves is, again, a little bit of math basis, a little bit of Flopzilla study, and you can find these spots everywhere. There are so many spots where you need 60% of folds and your opponent's going to fold 75, or you need 50% of folds and your opponent's going to be folding 60 and change. I mean, there's so much easy profit out there. If you're willing to do just a little bit of off-table exploration, uh, trust me, it pays off dividends. And again, you have to make some assumptions and sometimes your opponent is going to wake up with, you know, top pair plus here. But again, that goes back to the original question of, do we think they're going to continue here with 10, 10x plus, in which case probably going to be very difficult to get them to fold on turns or they continue with ace high. And if a lot of ace high, then we can probably get them to fold, you know, 50 to two thirds of the time on turns. Cool. So now we can just barrel off. But again, none of this has to do with the fact that we have king nine of diamonds specifically. It just has to do with who our opponent is and what they're likely to do to our check raise. All good? So James, good. what was your read on this player and what were you planning on if they did uh, just call? Sure. So first thought was a little bit tight preflop, but not like super, super ultra nitty. I didn't think they open limped because anytime they did enter a pot, it was always with a raise, never any open limping from them before, which means that I did think that I could put the smaller pairs into their preflop raising range. I thought that they were likely to oversee bet, which means that again, there's going to be more hands that can find the fold button to my check raise. And I thought that if they did continue to the check raise, it was going to be on the stronger side of the spectrum, probably single pairs that are too strong to fold later. So I'm probably going to play turns really, really face up and probably just end up check folding a lot of the time. And I can get away with that as, as long as the original check raise was outright profitable. The issue is, is you can't start taking the, I'm going to always close up on turns because I'm scared, right? Or no real thoughts on my opponent's range or my, their frequencies. So it has to, you know, all make sense. But as long as you're thinking, okay, I think they're folding enough right this moment is an outright profitable check raise. And then if they do continue, they have a frequency issue, they have a range issue, and you get to exploit them because they're simply not going to be folding anywhere near enough of the time on the next card. You can exploit them by not just mashing bluffs into them for no reason, especially when there's like no fold equity. Chris, did you have something there? Chris, did you have anything there? No, I had the same question, but I I love what you said there because I feel like once I make this decision to check raise, I think one of my big leaks is I'm like, well, I got to keep going now. I love (laughs) what you say there is like, well, if they're calling this, they're calling you something really strong, and it's it might be time to give up. So exactly, um, yeah, yeah, I like I like that. I think think that's a con. What? Go ahead. As long as the check raise was outright profitable, right? that's when you can get away with correctly saying, okay, they continued. I didn't think they were going to continue all that often. They happened to this time, and I don't think there's going to be enough fold equity on the next street. As long as that's the case, because again, a lot of people will just take the check raise for no reason, and then the turn frequencies are just so massively disjointed. So it, it has to be thinking about everything in, in order and along the whole continuum. 
And I think that's a concept that a lot of uh, us less experienced players or recreational players tend to miss is, say, you look at a situation like that and you say, okay, I think they're going to fold their range two-thirds of the time. So this bet here is a profitable play. Um, yep. And so, but, but in this situation, they, they don't. They don't fold. And so now we think, oh, that was a bad play. And now we're lost and we start chasing good money after bad. I think you, yep. you have to say, you know, what made that a profitable play is that you're not getting stacked that third of the time where they do call. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like, I, I think that's a, a thing that we kind of miss is that we look and say, well, two out of three times is going to work. And just because it didn't work this time doesn't mean it's still not a good play. Still doesn't mean it's not going to work two out of three times. But if you end up losing so much value on that one out of three times it doesn't work, then you've turned it into a non-profitable play. Exactly right. Right. You can take a profit, an outright profitable bluff and turn it into an overall negative EV line by completely messing up the turn. And to your point earlier, and I believe you're the one that made it about, you know, hitting that leverage point and, and getting yourself committed if your opponent continues, that's just simply not the case. In fact, the, the fact that we are check raising here makes it seem like we are committing ourselves and makes it seem like we're attacking a leverage point, which can create more folds from our opponent and again, ultimately end up really helping us at the end of the day. So just because we're putting 53 at risk doesn't mean that we're putting our entire stack at risk unless we choose to do that. But again, that's why I'm forcing you guys to make a strong discernment right this moment. Do I think it's going to be worthwhile for me to put another 200 in play after this? Or is the check raise so good that if my opponent does continue that small chunk of the time, I'm not going to make the spewy mistake of constantly smashing an extra 200 into them for no reason, that very, very small chunk. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I like so much of what you brought up here. And I think it's such a real good, tangible application for ranging your opponent. I think sometimes we get kind of lost, uh, again, as newer players, kind of lost a little bit in sort of this you know, theoretical hand ranging, and we all want to be great at it. But this is such a good practical application of saying, well, what do we think they're going to continue with? Even exactly. if it's just generally big cards or not, and how does that change our decision making? So that's fantastic. And I know we only have about 10 minutes of time left, so I don't think we want to start a new hand. Um, but we, I've got a couple other questions on this one if you're, if you're willing to. Yeah, sure. And can I can I make one more point to that? Yeah, sure. Hold on. Sorry, my ADD got me. You were just <laughs> saying something. Oh, okay. So when you are studying this hand, and again, you know, we should always be studying hands. And this is the great thing about the fact that you guys have this community together is that you guys can hack through hands together. It makes all the difference sometimes because everyone has, you know, slightly different assumption sets and some people are more technical and other people are, you know, more, more tell based, whatever it is, it really allows you to kind of meld all those ideas. But when you are studying this on your own, I would definitely suggest that you pause for a minute and say, okay, what if EP2 were the kind of guy who's really wide preflop, really tight on the C-bet? What if he's loose preflop, but C-bet's everything? What if he's tight preflop and C-bet's everything? Run through a bunch of different scenarios and make some different assumption sets on what you think they'd continue with against the check rates. Do you think they're continuing always with overcards? Do you think it's only with ace-king, ace-queen, not with king-queen, queen-jack? Not that queen jack might be in the prefop range but you get the idea uh, what do you think they're going to do with like pocket deuces and pocket fours stuff like that and as you do that more and more often even just in the same hand you're really going to start spotting some very very similar numbers you're going to see where numbers like one third 
40%, 50% start to creep in a lot of the time. And then when you can compare that back to break-even percentage and just bare bones basic math, that's when in real time you can say, okay, these are the assumption sets I'm making, and of course, why? And this is the play I'm going to run because I know it's mathematically good or bad. Don't ever find yourself in this spot and just start guessing. Right. I mean, yes, I know we're making some assumptions on their range, but it's it's a hypothesis. It's not a pure guess. And you never want to be guessing with the math because the math is actually pretty darn simple. As long as you do a little bit of it each day, you know, if you did 15 minutes of math for two weeks, you'd be so much stronger than the average person in the games. Like seriously, without breaking a sweat. So do a little bit of this work. Take a single hand like this and run it a couple different ways, both with different ranges, different continuance sets. And you're going to be able to find when you should be check raising and giving up, when you should be check raising and barreling, when check calling might be a little bit more profitable, and then when you might just go with the default check fold, which I know is what a lot of players do. But I'm always challenging you to get outside of just always check folding when you miss. Because that's a really, really dangerous thing and it will really massively hinder you from moving up. It's not that folding doesn't exist, it most certainly does, but if your only determinant of that is whether or not you hit a strong enough hand, there's, there's, no, there's no hope. So you, you have to get out of that as soon as possible. It's so good. I mean, I think what you're talking about, there, there's sort of a, a logical deductive approach to this thing, looking at all of the different options that you can do. There's looking at all the different opponent types and what they might do. So there's this logical side, but I think what you're also introducing is this curious creative side as well. Like kind of this, this what if, well, what if, well, what if, well, what if, well, what if, and then, you know, even thinking outside of the box, the creative side of that, like you're saying, well, what if we go to 80 here? What happens? And I think just that in the studying, just having that sort of um, either either curiosity inside of you or curiosity inside of the group that you're studying with could be a huge advantage. That's exactly right. Because if you don't ask yourself these questions off table when you're studying, you're right. sure as hell not asking yourself in real time. So which inherently means you're limiting your options. And it's not to say that over bets are always going to be there, but like that's actually what the, the next hand was going to be is looking at an over bet spot. So I'm just going to flick it and I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to run through. <laughs> so just a situation, again, board rolls out really, really clean. Pot's 317 on a 10-9-3, 9-9 board, and our opponent checks to us. So and we, we, have, we have pocket kings, everybody. So we got kings on a board that has three nines, a 10, and a three. Exactly right. Okay. And 317 in the middle, 400 effective. Now, a lot of players will just bet here for 200, maybe 250, maybe 150 because they don't want to scare their opponent off but very few people consider going for the full rip. And if you never consider the full rip, you are leaving so much money on the table. And again, it's not to say that it's always going to be best, but if you never consider it, how the hell could you ever find it? So <laughs> when you're doing this stuff off table, like spend the time, ask yourself some of these weird questions. Always ask yourself different bet sizes. Give yourself three at minimum and say, what would happen if I went to each of these? And by doing that work, oh, you're going to stretch the technical part of your brain so, so well. It's like exercise for it. And it needs that exercise. That way, in real time, you have a higher probability of coming up with the optimal line or something far, far better than at least the default line or worse, the scared line. Yeah. Oh, that's so good, sir. <laughs> Thank you. That's, I, yeah. I mean, you got, you got me going now, man. You got me going. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. I know we, 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 we only have so much time with you and man, we could go for hours and hours, but I want to, I do want to respect your time. 
uh, especially since you've been up since three in the morning. Uh, but but uh, if you have anything else to add on that stuff, otherwise just kind of give us a, give us a flavor for what's going on in your world. I know we just interviewed Robbie Straczynski and I know you're involved with him uh, on some things. So kind of give us a little bit of a perspective on the world of the split suit. Oh goodness. It's a, it's a busy world to say the least, but um, it's actually really nice. I'm kind of taking a slight breather from, from writing books right this moment. And I have a course percolating in my brain, but it's not, it's not there yet. It's outlined, but everything's outlined with me. It's, I outline things many times. <laughs> I have one of those uh, eight foot by four foot boards over on my other wall that I write all my nonsense on. So I am surrounded um, right now with whiteboards. You can't see them. I'm surrounded by whiteboards, so it's I get perfect. It. Yeah. It's per- especially if you're a visual person, you have to do it this way. Right. Um, but right now, I've been spending a lot of time on the YouTube stuff, really starting to get back into making videos there, and I'm actually doing down-the-barrel stuff. So instead of just doing replayer, it's me looking in the camera and stuff I literally haven't done in years, and I'm enjoying it. So it's challenging me and it's getting me out of my comfort zone. And if I'm going to ask y'all to get out of your comfort zone and fire barrels you're not comfortable with, then I got to do the same thing when it comes to content. <laughs> and, and remind us the, the YouTube channel is? So that's the Poker Bank. The Poker Bank? Yep. Or if you okay. just search really split suit anything yeah. on on YouTube, you're, you're find something. Be it a concept like SPR or a hand like King 10 suited, you're, you're find something on there for sure. Awesome. Well, okay. Well, uh, any, any other way, how can people connect with you? I mean, obviously sp- search on split suit. What, but what's your preferred way? Do you have an email list? Do you have the Twitter piece? Yeah. What, what, what would you like people to do to connect with you? So just visit splitsuit.com. Check it out. See you, see what's going on. Take some quizzes and kind of start digging in and the quizzes, especially I would definitely suggest checking out because it's, it'll challenge you. It'll force you to do some technical exploration that you may have otherwise skipped and it will be very, very helpful. And I know we talked a lot about math stuff today and uh, talked about one of the spreadsheets that I have, but you can actually download a whole lot of them. I put them up uh, just actually last week. So if you go to splitsuit.com slash sheets, it'll take you right there. Name your own price. You can name zero bucks, no stress, and essentially get into it. It will help you with your technical exploration because we got to be doing this stuff off table. If we're not, it's going to get nasty in real time. Yeah, it's, it's so good. And it's, it's an area that we want to keep growing with with our listeners and our community too. So uh, we'll be in contact and maybe there's some ways that we can partner on some of those things or even leverage some of your tools for, for our audience. Uh, because I think that's it's great. just, I think it's just fantastic. And it's, it's kind of, I can kind of sense that's where our people are is, you know, we've learned a lot of the hypothetical. We've learned a lot of this stuff beyond just playing the cards and, and some of those things. But I think there is some technical learning that uh, is still a gap for a lot of, for me and for a lot of our folks as well. So I will be in touch about how we can partner going forward. That sounds great. And if you guys are interested, actually, have you checked out my, my live workbook? Yeah, I have. I don't know if other people have. Okay. So part of the, the, the thing I had in the back of my head when I was creating this is I really wanted communities to do it together. Everyone does a hand for the week. Everyone, you know, maybe do two hands for the week, but everyone's talking about the exact same hand history, the exact same analysis and format. And you really get to see how everything pieces together. And as a community building, it's very, very, very helpful. So if y'all do that, please let me know. And I'd love to see how that turns out. Sounds like a plan. All right, James, put suit Sweeney. Thank you so much. Indeed. Thanks for having me, sir. Thank you. Take care. You can sign off there. All right, guys. Well, that was fantastic. Stacy, Chris, John, thanks for uh, thanks for joining there. Uh, I can bring in some of the other folks here. Uh, we have six attendees on the line. If you guys are out there, Andy, George, Jack, John, 
Uh, if you guys want to join, why don't you raise your hand or shoot me a chat, and I will promote you to panelists. Otherwise, you're welcome to just continue uh, listening in there. John Vensky, I am promoting you as we speak. So again, raise your hand or uh, shoot me a chat. All right, Stacy, Chris, John, what do you guys what do you guys think? Anything from uh, Split Suit that we want to chat through? Well, I've got two two big notes that I'm taking with me, and that is uh, making sure that I have three bet sizes at every chance, and thinking about why I'm choosing which one, uh, which I think is an excellent thing because I think I do kind of get on autopilot when it comes to that. Oh, it's got to be three, whatever, and then. Um, the thing that I think I, I've already been trying to hammer to myself, but like just once you hit the green light to do the check raise, it doesn't mean you have to keep hammering home. And so not just mashing it home on the turn, I think was a really big for me. So those are the two big takeaways, but I just, I love talking to him. He's, he's brilliant about poker. Yeah, no, I think those takeaways are fantastic. I think that's a phenomenal summary. If, if nothing else to think that through, cause I'm kind of like you, it's, well, here's my bet size, you know, cause I want to be consistent in it but not really thinking through what brings the biggest value. Right. Uh, good stuff. Yeah. And, and how much ground did we cover in 45 minutes? I mean, right. that was insane. Yeah. I, I think another uh, point when you asked um, if we were pot committed and I think one thing to note is that this was a cash game instead of a tournament. Right. Which, which changes things a little bit because you really only need to have positive EV. You don't, there aren't the ICM considerations and there isn't the stack shallowness. You can always add more money to your stack. You know, if you get depleted versus a tournament, those are the only chips you have for your life. Yeah. And that was the one question that I was going to ask him if we did have more time was, okay, let's take that first hand and let's, let's drop that down to, you know, 40, 50, 60 big blind stack in a tournament. How does that change your thinking? But yeah, I totally agree. When you're 150 big blinds deep effective, feels like it changes things pretty dramatically. Yep. Yeah, Chris, I was kind of thinking the other side of that where I was looking at, he didn't necessarily say we had to give up because that's kind of been my MO is, oh, somebody comes back, they must have, they must have pocket tens. I mean, that <laughs> reason, I, I narrow their whole range down to pocket tens and <laughs> And then I'm just kind of in give up mode where I kind of like, and I'd love to have more discussion on what that turn card would be could make a big difference, whether I would just hang it up or whether I fire that second bullet. And then to, to know what I'm looking for, that's the biggest, that's where I'd love more discussion from either him or even us as a group. Yeah. I think, I think what was fascinating about that was the, you know, how he, how he's splitting up people's ranges so much even if even if people would see bet their entire range just like when you check raise he's sort of automatically thinking is this the kind of person that will continue with big cards or wouldn't continue with big cards and even just just thinking about the that particular thing for that type of player and how that would impact uh, how what you would do on the turn i think is is huge because you know if they would if they would continue with just two big cards okay well then you're you know you might be able to bluff them off the turn if they wouldn't then you're probably dead. You're going to get more folds on the check raise, but you might be dead unless, you know, a scare card comes on the turn or something. Yeah. Well, if we had infinite time, that's the question I probably would have asked him, which is how do you go about making that determination? Cause I think that's the most difficult thing. Everything else he said to me made sense, but how do you peg whether this person is the type of person who's only can 
going to continue if they have a pair or better, or if they're going to continue with air. And, you know, in a few situations, I feel like I know people who are just going to continue with air. But a lot of people, I don't have a good read on, and I can't say, are they type A or type B? But it gives you something to watch for when you're out of hands. You know, you can follow some other hands, and you can kind of keep keep an eye out. I mean, sometimes my brain just wanders because I don't know what to look for. Here's one more thing you can kind of just keep an eye on, and when a hand is shown at the end and you're not in it, now you got to go, oh, wow, look at that guy. He he was strung along. He, he just called with two overs and just kind of make those little mental notes. Yep. Yeah, and that's where it's so hard for me because I, I feel like <laughs> – First of all, it's hard to pay that much attention to everything. But if even if I do see it, well, I remember it. And even if I do remember it, it's usually it's one or two instances. Like, you know, every situation is different. So, okay, somebody check-raised them and they called. Well, it wasn't me that check-raised them. It was somebody else that check-raised them. And they were in different positions. And, you know what I mean? It's so hard to, like, say – for me, it's hard anyway to draw that inference. Yeah, I think you're right. You can kind of notice, oh, they tend to be, you know, not really a folder, you know, that kind of thing. But – I have trouble kind of filing that away and really feeling like, is this useful when I encounter that? Do you think eventually it gets to be like you categorize people like in, in general, this type of player, whether it's the John Deere hat or whether it's the loose aggressive or whether, you know, do you think, do you think he, he kind of gets flavors of betting patterns and that's the type of player that 60, 70% of the time would, and that's what he goes with. Not necessarily that, oh, I saw him do it before, but this is the type or category. You think he does it that way, or most people do it that way? I, I hope so, because that feels like I then have hope. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. What, what do you guys think? I think it might be related to what Fox has been talking about in the training sessions, the context-based memory, where if if you start to build up a context of, and, and know, and I don't have this, by the way, but if you know, um, okay, these are the type of people who barrel, you'll start seeing that. It's kind of like after you buy a car and you notice, you know, there's a lot of this type of car on the road. <laughs> and you swore before you bought the car there was right. not that many of them in there, right? It's because you're now mm. tuned into seeing that. And I'm hoping that as you learn a few of these things, that same type of thing will happen Will you'll where you'll start to see player tendencies. And then it won't be a matter of remembering everything they do. It'll be a matter of remembering things that fall into patterns mm. that you've already got buckets for. I really like that. Yeah. You like that, John? I'm hoping. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Because So you're sort of like saying, well, yeah, patterns like if – you know, it, it's kind of like the Amazon thing. People who bought this also liked this. And so yeah. there's kind of that people who tend to whatever three bet light also tend to defend or whatever, whatever those connections are, you're saying sort of become the player type. And so if I saw them three bet light, by inference, I can maybe assume that they're the kind of person that's going to continue with just two big cards in this spot. Well, that and, and, the, and the corollary of by doing the work off the table and understanding what goes into what makes this play profitable, like understanding if they're going to barrel again on the turn or call light. If you understand what the important parameters are, because I think that's one of the things we struggle with now, there are 5 million different things to watch out for. <laughs> and what are the 
100 or 50 of those that are the important things to watch for. Hopefully studying off the table will help us understand what the important things are to watch for and make it easier for us to concentrate on those things as opposed to everything. Right. No, that, that's well said. That's kind of what I'm always saying. It's like, okay, it depends. It depends on a million things, but what do I really need to pay attention to or what, what things do I give the most weight to? I do struggle with that. Cause even, even like in his first example, like uh, it was just so good, but I'm like thinking, okay, do I want him to be the kind of person that continues with two big cards or not? Not that it, not that I have a control over what I want, but I'm thinking part of me thinks like, no, I don't want him to be the kind of person that continues with big cards because then he's just going to fold to my check raise. But then part of me says, no, I want them to be the kind of person that continues with just two big cards because then they're probably going to fold turn and I'm going to get more money. And even just that simple thing, like, I don't even know what I want, but also which is more profitable? Well, in the end, I, I don't think that's really the right question to be asking. So if a car is come, if you're coming straight onto a car, you're driving, are you going to swerve to the left or to the right? I'm going straight, baby. Just because I think, <laughs> just because I think that that might be the right answer to the question. Well, <laughs> the answer is you want to go the opposite way that they, that oh. person coming on you goes right. So it depends upon that specific piece of information. Yeah, that's assuming you don't want to end up in the front end collision. Well, likewise with the uh, pots, I think the point isn't what do you want them to do. It's figuring out. What are they likely to do, and how do you take advantage of that? And right. in one case, taking advantage of it means stealing it from them on the pot, uh, on the flop. And in the other case, it meant following through and being prepared to steal it on the turn. Right. So it's not like you need to wish for something. You just need to recognize the situations that you have available to you and how you can make the most profit from that. Yeah. Easier said than done. No, for sure. And, and that's what I was kind of getting at. Like, I know I can't really hope for something or whatever, but just even, even understanding that, like, which is more profitable. Like I, I couldn't even tell you right now, like, which is more profitable. If they're the kind of person that does continue with two cards and I don't get folds, but I get folds on turns or there's a the kind of person that doesn't continue and I get more folds on my, on my check raise. And you're right. It's, it's not about like, what do I want? Cause I can't control what they're going to do anyway. But like, I'm not even sure which is more profitable. Not that that really matters, but I think it does. Just just even that sort of thinking, I guess, is kind of what I'm getting at. It's just that that sort of framework of thinking about two uh, two different scenarios that each have a different EV, and how do we even know which is more profitable? Because I think that sort of thinking then leads to, you know, should I check or should I bet or should I raise or or whatever. So I think it's just more of a mentality that I think I need to develop a little bit more. Yeah. And maybe it's too soon, but, um, uh, you know, so if a, if a car is driving down the road and you're walking instead of driving at yeah, that car. I recommend what, getting out of the way, going whatever <laughs> way they don't go. Oh, you couldn't resist, could you? I, I know, I'm, like, I'm just so bad. I'm like, I can't. I'm just looking at your, your picture on there and I'm like, how do I not? Say something yeah, yeah, yeah. when John brings up that situation. If, for those of you who don't know, it's okay if I say that, Chris. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, Chris actually was walking and got hit by a car. So 
Um, so John bringing up that, I think that was just really heartless of John, frankly. <laughs> I thought so too. Well, I like nice guy in poker, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> I was not thinking about that at all. I retract that statement. <laughs> <laughs> it was now a horse and buggy coming at each other. <laughs> right. Maybe that would do more damage. I don't know. Yeah. Well, what do you guys think? Do you have more comments on sort of this sort of stuff? Otherwise we can spend a little bit of time. Uh, talking about some of the math stuff as a follow-up from the Fox thing or go ahead, Chris. The one thing that, and this is kind of math related too. the one thing that uh, I was thinking about, about when he's talking about the break-even stuff. And I I tend to think about this uh, a bit more in the situation he's talking about when you make a big bluff, how often does it have to work? But um, the thing that I think is interesting is that I think this is true that. So if, if you need the person to fold 47 or 57% of the time, that then they should be calling or raising 43% of their range, which when you're facing that big of a three bet, I mean, I don't think I do that. I, I think that's, that's, that seems like a huge percentage of the, of your potential hands. And it's something that I'm trying to think about what would be 43% of, of the hands I might be holding in that situation when we're thinking about this opponent. And I think that's why that works so often probably in his, his experience. But I mean, it also suggests to me that as players, um, you do need to find the ability to sort of stand, stand, stand tall or stand your ground a little bit more when facing that kind of aggression um, and finding, finding calls with sort of not just the most premium of your hands. Right. So, so you're kind of putting yourself in that other spot. Like if you yeah. had C-bet there, say with pocket eights on a 10-7, yeah. three board and it you know checks to you and you bet and you get three bet, you know, that sort of, the, that's what you're saying, right? Um, right, exactly. You know, how often do I just get away from that? And if, if I am getting away from that too often, I become exploitable mm-hmm. and I'm going to, I'm never going to be able to continuation bet again without right. the nuts, right? right. Because I'm always going to be continuation bet folding. Right. Yeah. No, that's interesting. And look at the pressure if you were to four bet, how quickly we would have folded here. Mm-hmm. You, right. Maybe, maybe maybe only had pocket fours, but if if you four bet with pocket fours there, that I mean, there's a large percent of our range that we would we just fold. And right. Certainly the king nine, we just we just snap fold. Yeah. yeah. Right. Even, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even if even if we had you know a random card with a seven, you know, playing a seven eight or something or middle pair or maybe even I don't know with ace ten, do you? Do you call that when you get four bet if you had ace ten? Yeah, so let, let's say you had a random card with a seven. I don't think he three bets there. No, I think the the check raiser. Oh, you're you saying, John? If the if the okay, or is, so that, or is that what you're saying? You're starting saying on the blind. If we had a seven, we just call. You're saying? Well, I, that was my question. I was wondering, okay. are you talking about who is the person who has the seven? Is it the same opener? Player. What the what? The same player that is us in, in the scenario. So, so in the scenario, suit. yeah, if split suit had the seven, um, I don't think he's going to check raise there True. because now he's he has some equity in the pot, yeah. and by check raising, you're turning your hand into a bluff, and and maybe that'd be the most profitable way to play it, but you've got some equity, and you're just kind of throwing that equity away by choosing to treat it as a bluff instead. Not that that's always wrong, but I don't think that'd be the first, uh, his first thought. 
Wouldn't be what, my first thought, at least. What strong hands do we three do we assume split suit three bets with? He might three bet with an over pair. Uh, any set, if he had gotten some type of a two pair, you know, a ten seven type of hand. Um, and that's and what it, he's trying to rep. Right. Is this a set or ace 10 or probably not? Ace 10 could be. Um, yeah. Might do it with a draw to like an eight, nine or something like that. Cause I think that was the only draw out there, right? I think it was a rainbow flop, wasn't it? Could have six, eight, right? Cause it was five, seven, 10. It's a double gutter or, okay. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah, but that then you think about okay, well, let's say uh, how often does the four bet happen there, and how often does a four bet work? Because if he does check raise there, you know, if we think he's doing that pretty wide, how much of that check raising range is he actually going to be continue with, continue with? And it has to be what two pair and sets. That's pretty much it, right? Or an over pair that we that he didn't re raise pre flop with, or a bluff. But a bluff he's not going to continue with. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he could have a bluff, but I think, you know, if we four bet there, you know, what's he going to be able to continue with? So when, when split suit three bet, you know, when he check raises, when he, th- when he re-raises there, I guess, um, you know, if we, if we re-raise him, what can he continue with? Not much. Yeah. No. That... Steve, can I ask you a question? Yes, sir. Um, so he was talking about all the different things that he was going through in his mind after the flop came out and after the, the villain bet the 15, you know, talking about what size to make the three bet and stuff like that. So I think the question that I would have wanted to ask him, and then I'm going to ask you guys what you think is how much time do you think it takes him to make that decision or how much time would it take you guys to make that decision? And then as a follow-up, do you ever get worried about taking additional time to make those decisions and then what kind of impact that has on the person that's, uh, you know, the villain making the decision to go, well, he's thinking about this too long. He must have the nut, so I'm folding and, and stuff like that. So what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think for me, the you know, because I haven't really been considering multiple different bet sizes, it really is the decision on do I fold or call or raise. So I'm, I'm kind of not going through that extra iteration of, okay, I've decided to check raise. What are those three pieces? Um, so that would take me, take me more time. Uh, I'll let you other guys answer. I think just in general though, uh, I used to think like people taking time in a live game really meant something. Now I'm not as sure as I, as I used to be. I used to just really think it's, they're super polarized. They either have the nuts or they have nothing. But now I feel like there are more people that are kind of thinking through bet sizing. They're thinking through their optimal line and they could have, a mediocre hand. So as far as, because I think that I don't necessarily think people will read into me in some major way, but maybe I'm, I'm off on that. Yeah. For me, I, I, I tend to agree that the only time where I feel like timing is a really effective tell is when it's quick. Yeah. When people are thinking about it, it's it's not really something that I um, put a lot of stuff. Yeah, because yeah, like I said, I used to really think that meant something. Then I realized people would take a long time and fold. People would take a long time and raise. People take a long time and call. 
And so it was harder for me to kind of discern that piece of it. As far as how long it takes, um, you know, I, I generally act pretty quick, but I don't know, I guess if I've started evaluating what is the optimal bet size, that's going to slow me down a little bit, but I, I tend to have too many people pleasing issues. So I tend to probably act sooner than I should at all times because I don't want to be that guy. And that's something that I frankly need to get better at not worrying about as much. Yeah. That's something I've been working on is not, not worrying about what the other people at the table think and just taking my time and, and trying to think through more things. Um, and a lot of times, you know, 75% of the hands you look at it and you go, Nope, I don't want to play this. But when I'm in the hand, then I want to take my time a little bit more at every decision and make sure that I'm optimally making the decisions. And by doing that, I find that I'm, I'm being able to steal more often and I'm being able to, uh, get value out of my hands more often as opposed to, you know, just throw a bet out and not even think, well, would they have called more or would they, or would they fold more if I would have bet less or more, or, you know, back and forth on that. So just taking a little bit more time seems to be helping my game at least. So that's why I was wondering, and I'm sure for him, he's done all the math behind the scenes, you know, the homework that he talks about. So he probably doesn't need to take very long to do that. But for the average rec player, I think they would need to take more time. And I was just wondering what other people would think about that. Would that be a, a tell because they're taking more time? Yeah. What do you guys think? I don't know. I think Go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say, I think in general, I tend to act too quickly. Um, I mean, I will slow down when big decisions are being made, but um, I, I don't necessarily think through all of my options the way I should when I'm in game. Stacy, some people might think it's a tell, whether it is or it isn't. Like you said, Steve, I, I used to think it was a tell too, but I don't know that it was. So, but John, to your question, it, it, somebody might read weakness into that. Somebody else might read super strength that you've got the nuts and you're just trying to maximize. So, you know, I, I don't know what to, what to do with that, but yeah, I think somebody could read it. And even though we all kind of agree that it's probably not a great tell, some people might jump on that and that'd be interesting to make a little note of for the future. <laughs> so now you have to read the other players and how they read your pausing. That's kind of, that's the next level stuff. So, so <laughs> Mr. Vensky, so, you think you said you're it's sort of helping your game a little bit. Do you feel like just because you're making better decisions or do you feel like part of that is as you're taking longer, you're getting more folds because people are reading you as stronger? No, I think I'm making better decisions. I'm thinking through uh, who my opponent is and, and kind of what you guys were talking about just a few minutes ago is like, I may not have played with this person for a very long time, but I'm paying more attention when I'm not in hands so that when I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about something and I'm looking at that player, I'm thinking, this is the strong player. This is a weak player. This is a tight, aggressive player. What, what are they? And then, and then really thinking through, okay, what's in the pot? What's, what's a bet size that I can get them to fold on or what's a bet size that I can get them to call on. And by thinking those things through, I'm able to acquire chips more earlier in the tournament and then I'm not on life support, you know, after the second break or something like that. And I'm, I don't have to worry about, Oh, what's the best hand. So I, I can shove on it and try to double up. 
Right, that's fantastic. That's that's great news. I noticed that uh, the Jack had commented earlier, and I forgot to mention this. I saw Chris. You were also smiling, maybe at this, but he said the guy that had, we were talking about who has the seven. We, we were confusing who had the seven, and Jack said the guy that had the seven just got hit by the car coming at him. So <laughs> thanks for that, Jack. I'm uh, not gonna live this one down, am I? <laughs> no, it's just it's horrific, man. It's just it's just horrific. <laughs> well, it's good. Any other thoughts on that on that stuff at all? Is that hand or split suits comments? I just had one question. If no, no, Chris, I think you have a, like a home game, don't you play that where you play with the same guys pretty regularly? Yeah, I tend to. Yeah, it, and I know John Somsky and I and Steve play, and, I'm not, I, and I can't remember John V if you'd play. But if you think about those guys, can you name the ones that would call with just an overpair or just over cards? I mean, do we, we played with these guys several times? Do we have enough knowledge? Can, do you think you could go around? take the top, the last final table in your group. Do you think you can name which ones could and which ones wouldn't? That's a fantastic question. I would, for me, this is John. I, I think I probably only have a read on maybe 10% of the players. Yeah. Where I'd be able to say one way or the other. So is that you at the, at the table of 10? Is that just you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know what I'll do. (laughs) No, but I mean, among the whole group of like 20 or 30 who we've played with over the whole time, I would say there'd only be two or three that I'd be able to say how they do. And it's probably a different two or three, depending upon the question you ask, would they do this or that or the other thing? But that's where I think my biggest weakness is. I understand everything you do to take people's range, narrow it down, figure out what they're calling. But how do you figure out what range is the, your guess for them? And then how much of their do they continue with? And I haven't watched people closely enough to feel like I have a really good feel for how to do that and use those tools. Right. So just for fun, John, what would Steve do? Would he, would he, uh, would, would he call our, our three or what do we do? We check raised would he call our check raise with uh two overs or would he call it with just an over pair or both steve call our raise um he'd call it with an over pair uh with his stack size i don't think he would have called it with just two overs okay unless it was taylor yeah, with Taylor, he would have shoved. Rip it in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I get some plays I might rip it in. Just if I think I if I think my two overs are good, I might there anyway, just because there's so much fold equity. But uh, yeah, no, I think that's probably a fair assessment. I think the it goes back to what I see bet. I think that's where you have to look at both things to say you know which players would see bet and fold, which players would see bet and call because a lot of players would never see bet if they didn't hit either. Yeah. So. That's that's a great question. I mean, I'm sitting and noodling in my mind this exact scenario. Like, who in our in our epic league would 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 react in in each different way? Which ones would rip it in? Which ones would rip it in light? Which ones would rip it in heavy? Which ones would uh, would just flat? Which ones would just fold big hands or you know medium strength hands? Yeah. That's a great question because because I, I don't know if this is where you're going, but just even thinking, okay, here's these guys and. 
And a lot of them I played with now for what? We played with some of these guys seven or eight years, right? Yep. And I'm struggling to think through what what each of them would do in the situation. Yeah. What what do I really what can I really expect from myself when I sit down at a table of relatively unknowns? Right. This is kind of also why I I always I'm trying to develop this, but I haven't quite gotten there. But like I feel like the the labels that are so often thrown around in the poker community of the loose aggressive and the tight aggressive and the passive loose passive, and I just feel like when you're getting down to this level of thinking, it, it, it sort of becomes useless. It's like, it's like, well, those are kind of nice labels as sort of guideposts, but when you're trying to decide this kind of thing, you need something else. And like, I'm trying to think of like how to develop that something else for myself. Like how do you start Hmm. to label players in a different way? That's actually more useful when you're in these spots. Um, and if anyone has any advice, I'd love it because I'm try- that's one of the things I'm really trying to think about with my game is like, is there um, a broader system of labels than those sort of four to five that we just are sort of thrown around in the whole poker community that you could start to give to people that would be really useful while you're playing? And that's an open question because I don't really have the answer yet. No, that that's a fantastic yeah. question. I think the only thing that I really feel like I can even somewhat trust is just asking the question, is this player capable of that? Mm -hmm. And that's not really fair either, but yeah, I agree. Like, you know, there, there's legs and tags and all these different things. And and I think any of them could, could call your raise there. I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you can just say, Oh, they're leg, they're going to do this or they're tag. They're not going to do this. I mean, it seems like there's some general categorization, but yeah, as you get into specific scenarios, it feels tough because there's so many dynamics. There's the dynamic of, well, what do they think I'm doing? You know, they're not just going to call everybody's uh, check raise with two overs, but they might call mine. You know, I don't know. I think that's, I think that's just, an, that's great. I mean, I think that's great. You're thinking about it. So yeah, the only thing that I really feel anywhere good about is if somebody makes a big play at me, you know, on the Turner river and I just, you know, do I think that they're capable? And I know that's a soft term too, but I think they're capable of doing this without the nuts. That's about the only question I feel like I can reasonably answer and feel confident trusting that read. Other than that, I feel like I'm guessing. I mean, I I know it's an, it's informed guessing, but it still feels like guessing. And I know that's part of hand ranging is that, but there are times where I just feel like I'm just guessing. Do you think that I was just thinking through this, like, what would Steve do that type of thing? Do you think as players get better at playing, you can't put them on it because there's so many more variables like Steve, you might not do that against me unless you saw me all of a sudden I'm trying to change my game. And you know that, and you saw me twice earlier in a tournament, do some jinky that I hadn't done before. Now you might be thinking, ah, he's really working on expanding his range. And so now you might do something different than you might do. So players that are at that higher level, my, my point was maybe we look for players that aren't at that level. It feels almost like that's what he was talking about is kind of looking for these that it, it is pretty consistent. This guy would almost never do this. He, he, he Every time he, he likes to loose call, but he folds if he doesn't hit the flop and look for those few people at the table and it might only be one or two. And those are the ones you tag in your brain and say, okay, when I get in a pot with him or her, I'm going to play this way. That narrows it down for me a little bit, kind of going, okay, I'm going to only look for three players that are consistently making 
a consistent mistake that I'm seeing and then target it rather than trying to guess what the best players in the table are doing. Maybe just get out of the hands until you have a big hand with those guys. I don't I know. That's a really good point. Because, yeah. I mean, they say poker is a game of spots and the spots don't just have to do with what your cards are. It's also about the dynamic at the table. And I know it's really weird. I, I say I don't have a read on people, but there will be times I get to the table where it'll be just like one person I can soul read them or I feel like I can. Yeah. And I know exactly what I need to do every time they make it. Well, no, you're a little tougher <laughs> than that. Because I'm not sure you always know what you're doing. <laughs> Never. <laughs> anyway, but it's interesting that sometimes that works, but sometimes it just, it doesn't. So I, I do think it really, what you said made perfect sense. And I think it's interesting too, when you, when you said that, Stacy. I remember when I first started playing poker and, you know, hopefully I've grown in the game, but when I first started, I feel like I was doing more of that. Like I really was sort of saying like, Ooh, these guys are really good. I'm not going to play pots with them. And, these people are obviously very new. I'm going to try to play pots with them. I remember doing that at like playing at the bar league. Mm -hmm. I would think, okay, there's just a, probably a couple players at each, you know, table that felt like they really, you know, knew the game pretty well. So why play pots with them? So I felt like I, I did that more. And then I think as I got more into the theory of position and, you know, kind of all of the other stuff, I sort of, I think I sort of lost a little bit of that to the point where I think it's detrimental now. I think I need to, start realizing that more almost like what Fox was saying in the training, like don't, don't set mine against Kuvang. He's never going to pay you off anyway. You know, it's kind of like that deal too, where if, if, you know, don't get into pots with players that aren't going to make big mistakes because it's just not that profitable. You're either going to lose the hand or you're going to win small. And so, yeah, I think bringing that up, I think is good. I think it's a good reminder for me to feel like I need to be a little bit smarter about not just saying, okay, I'm in this position, so I'm going to open this hand, but really think a little bit more, at least, have it be a factor of, well, who am I possibly playing this pot against? And maybe opening, you know, wider or narrower based on that situation. Yeah, it helps your memory thing you've talked about. You can only invest so much. Right. Let's just focus on the, the players that aren't, you know, that aren't that good or that have big leaks. And then, okay, if you get aces, go ahead and play against Kubing. You know, you're going you're gonna to get in those hands, but then you're going to be in a better position. Yeah. What do you guys think, Chris or Vensky? Do you guys have anything on that deal at all? I think that's an interesting insight. I think it's good advice to not get into hands with Kuvang. <laughs> well, the good thing is I just don't play I've, tournaments. I've run amok a few times with that, with that uh, little uh, number. I think I've played with him three times, and he's just owned me. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> frustrating. <laughs> the first one was at a final table, actually, of, a, of an MSPT regional. And this is back when I like first started. I had no idea what I'm doing. Like, I really didn't. I kind of deck hit me in the head, and I got there. And I was with him and Aaron Johnson. And, you know, at least the way that they were playing at that final table, they're both world-class players. Koo was just hammering pots. Aaron was just sneaky, like super tight. And then all of a sudden, he win a big pot. Like, it was so interesting to watch them. I just, like, I was so fascinated by that whole thing and they just kept taking my chips. It was pretty awful, but <laughs> yeah, but, but I think that's a good point. I think, I just think it's a really good point. Stacy earlier, you had asked, you know, what we, what we, um, could we pick three or four people out of our, our home leagues? 
So one of the things that I did when I first started and I go back and I look at it again over and over again, usually like at the beginning of a new season or something, is I try to put every player on on are they tight aggressive, are they loose aggressive, and I review those on a regular basis so that when I'm sitting at the table, it that is already kind of ingrained in my mind. This is the person. And then when I sit down at the tables, kind of what your what your point was there is I look for the weakest players and figure, okay, this is who I want to attack every single time they're in a hand. I can I will re-raise them because I know that they're going to fold 60% of the time or 70% of the time. Or I'll look at who's on my right, who's on my left. Do I have to be careful of somebody because I think that they're going to try to do that to me um, the same same way? So I'll play a little more defensively against them. Again, maybe just playing you know the top 10 or 15% of the hands when I know that they're they're going to be in that hand with me. So I'm, I'm constantly evaluating the players and there are definitely three to four players in, in our home league out of about 24 players that would do exactly what you asked that would, would have come over the top and four bet me and they may have done it or would do it without anything at all. I mean, they could be playing ACE three, um, but they, they just feel like, Hey, I have to play that, that loose, that aggressive in order to, to, to take pots, but if you play them all the way down to the river, then they'll fold on the river because they literally will have nothing. So you you have to know that in advance, and then you have to play that way. So with those types of players, I probably would not have three bet like he did in this example, but I would definitely just call all the way down to the river and then maybe three bet on the river and take the pot at that point. Can I ask you, John, what other categories besides loose aggressive and tight aggressive do you put these guys in? Um, those are the two primary ones, but but kind of what you were talking about before, I think maybe Chris said it was if they're very, very passive and they're just going to, you know, fold everything, every bet that comes up against them unless they have, let's say, aces, kings, queens, ace, king, or ace, queen, then, you know, that's that's just really – and there are very few of those types of players, but there's one or two in our league that, that is like that. And they're usually new, and it takes them a while, but they figure it out that they can't just play those premium hands. They'll be gone first every night. Do you have a category for kind of the, I guess I call it just a straightforward player that isn't super aggressive, that super tight, they just play pretty solid poker? I, I put them I put them just in, um, in, in one of the two. They're either going to play tight or they're going to play loose. Um, but and then if they're if they're just going to play ABC, I don't. I guess I don't really have a, a category for ABC. I try to put them in one of those three. It's passive, tight aggressive, or uh, or loose aggressive, and just go from that. There's one other categorization I tend to use, and that's the because tight aggra- tight aggressive or loose aggressive tends to refer more to their kind of opening ranges versus being. Um, Fitter fold or sticky, and um, the the people who are sticky give me the most trouble. I you bet know, those, they do. Yeah, <laughs> especially because I keep on trying to push them out of the pot. Because you got a barreling get, issue. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, John. No, but so I, that's just another another thing that is a little related in that looser players tend to be stickier, but it's not a guarantee. You, you do have some tight players who also are a little bit sticky, but it's just another thing that I use to help categorize people. Yeah, that's a, and that's a little about 
where I've been trying to think about these things too, like some of the, the how do we categorize people is kind of that post-flop play. So I've even been trying to break down that sticky thing into like, what are they sticky with? So are they, are they, uh, so I've been trying to classify people into like things like, this isn't quite I haven't quite figured it all out, but like floaters versus chasers versus mm. um, and like trying to figure out what is it that gets them to stick around and what is it that gets them to fold. And if I can start to notice those things, if I can label them, maybe I can do something with it. But that's what I'm playing around with. I haven't quite figured it out, but uh, I'd be really curious if anybody wants to try to figure that out with me. <laughs> yeah. I think that'd be a phenomenal discussion because I think you're right. I mean, People will just float because they're, they, they're, it has nothing to do with their hand. Mm-hmm. They're just looking for weakness. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the people that are just, they're, they're going to call all the way down with their draws. Mm-hmm. And you got people that are going to call all the way down with any sort of made hand. Mm-hmm. And so, but I think there are combinations of people that will call all the way down with a made hand, but not with a draw and the inverse. I mean, right. I, I think there right. are, yep. I think that's, that's good. I think there are different types of calling stations, if you will. They're not, they're maybe not people that are going to raise you. They, they actually just want to keep going. Um, but they're very different types of people. Yep. Mm. Yeah, that would be cool. That'd be a cool conversation for sure. Well, guys, we're, we're at about time. Anything else you guys want to bring up? I know we didn't get to any of the Fox stuff, but uh, we can talk about any of that real quick if you want or any other subjects. All right. Good stuff, guys. We will uh, we'll chat with some of you later this week. The rest of you next Monday night. All right. See you guys. Thanks, guys.